0: Welcome to another episode of Differences Not Deficits, where we discuss what we are learning and changing in our therapy so we can support and empower neurodivergent individuals with compassion and respect. Thank you for listening so we can all learn
1: together. The primary purpose of Differences Not Deficits is to educate and inform. The views expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not constitute educational or medical advice. Listeners should consult with their professionals familiar with each individual or family for specific guidance. Hello,
0: everyone. Welcome to episode five of Differences, Not Deficits. Today, we're going to continue to unpack trauma and neurologically different people. So this is a continuation from episode four. So if you haven't listened to that, you may want to just go ahead and start there. So first, we were going to start with a beautiful quote from Mr. Rogers that ties perfectly into this discussion of trauma and emotions. I must be an emotional archaeologist because I keep looking for the roots of things, particularly to roots of behavior and why I feel certain ways about certain things. So it is apparent, at least to Yolandi and I, that if you just logically think about it, neurologically different people would experience a stressful or distressing, overwhelming situation more often. And and I often think, I think about this all the time, that just by being born into this loud, overwhelming world, where often things are way too loud or too bright, uncomfortable, confusing, itchy, (laughs) et cetera. And then by adding to that, maybe parents can only help if they know how to help. And figuring that out is just not a simple task. So these people could live in a state of distress for so long. I mean, if you think about if if you've I just know from my own experience, I'm sure Yolandi feels the same. If you've worked with a young, autistic child and trying to figure out what they're trying to say, oh my gosh, can be so hard. And of course, you know, this is unintentional. We don't mean to not be able to figure out what's what's happening or what they want or what they need, but it definitely happens. So if you think about just that alone, if you think about the difficulty that autistic individuals can have with communication, that in and of itself can be very traumatizing, distressing at least. And you have to look at the fact that often neurodivergent individuals have difficulty communicating. In fact, that can be the most difficult thing for them to do. If they were upset about something and didn't know how to communicate that or no one understood what they were trying to communicate, they may have developed some kind of adaptation whether that's consciously or unconsciously. I just want to mention here that this does not matter whether they have language. There are kids I know or young adults or who have tons of language but cannot express communicate their emotions and cannot really adequately get across what they're feeling in a moment. Like if something happened to them or even to be able to kind of replay that situation. So someone understands their perspective can be incredibly hard. So that can lead to just a lot of being misunderstood, which can be very traumatic if that's happening to you all the time. So I just want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like if you were trying to communicate something to many different people and no one, no one could understand what you were trying to communicate. Perhaps it was just something like the sound of something that was piercing to your ears, but no one around you could understand. And it was painful because those people around you might just be thinking, well, that's just a normal sound. That's, that's fine. That it can't be that. Now let's think about how you would feel inside if that happened to you. What would you do? If you had no way to communicate discomfort, and if this happened to you time and time again, do you think that would lead to some kind of distress? How would you show that distress? How would you? How would your communication look? Could it look like a behavior? And even if you develop more language later, do you think those memories just go away? Or do they live in your body? As we've discussed, you know, on our previous episode, trauma experts would say they live in your body. Do you think you would feel heard? Do you think you would feel understood? And remember, this is happening to you time and time again. And as you get older, could you have some additional behaviors? Because this is the way you learned to express that distress that became your kind of coping mechanism for distress.
1: Yeah. And Debbie and I can see it sometimes very clearly that often these behaviors that our clients are actually displaying, these are responses that came from distress or trauma. And they're often, if not always, communicating something. These behaviors may look like they're just being defiant or annoying or they're stimming, but when you dig deeper, that isn't always the case. Of course, we're not saying that these behaviors are always a stem from trauma or distress. There are other situations where that's not the case, but it's an important conversation to have now that we're learning more from autistic and neurodivergent adults. People need to understand the future implications of our actions, even as therapists, even as caregivers, as family members, as parents. These lasting scars that we leave in behavior change therapy is real. And we can't ignore a simple program or a procedure that failed, because even if it fails in our scientific minds, that doesn't mean it it doesn't have future implications of, you know, issues or things that you will have in the future. So many times I have changed my approach, even as a behaviorist, thinking I was replacing a non-desired behavior for my client, but really it was just adding that band-aid. It created that distress without even knowing the root cause. And I treated the function thinking that I replaced it, but I actually didn't actually fix anything. Then I might get confused to why that client has a change in their behavior even after I treated the function. Well, that because we missed it. We missed the underlying true adaptation that was created and the emotional attachment that was to that. And because neurodivergent people have a very different sensory system, that doesn't mean that they can communicate in that moment, the correct function, sometimes that function is distorted, or sometimes you have a multifunction behavior that you're treating. And if you feel like one aspect works, just because it alleviated that behavior doesn't mean you actually fixed the problem. And a clear example, kind of of that, let th- it resonate with you a little bit more is that there was a girl I worked with. She is now 15. She is a speaker, but she has very limited kind of scripted language. She would use kind of movie talk to communicate. For example, if she was in a distressed situation or something that really uncomfortable. She would talk about the vines growing on Cinderella's castle and they're just getting bigger and taller and darker. Or she would talk about Dumbo and Dumbo losing his mom and how sad that was or even when she was happy she would talk about like the wally movie when wally and eva are dancing in the sky and having a great time and it's beautiful <laughs> um so it was kind of a window into her emotional state at the time or that's what i thought and so you know at age 9 she had when i first kind of started working with her she had a very big change in behavior. She started spitting and she started biting her parents. And as a behaviorist, you look at the functions of that. Why are we biting? Why are we spitting? And I didn't know at the time that it was a deeper cause i knew that reading her file because you do your due diligence as a therapist and you you read the file and you talk about what happened and and what worked and what didn't work in different situations she had the past behavior of being a biter and a spitter the root cause of that distress or that trauma wasn't really known and i don't really know if at this time i know what that was about but like we said in episode four It was her perceived situation that led her to have the behavior of spitting. It wasn't necessarily something that I thought in the environment changed that much that would cause that, but it was the adaptation she created when she was little. And when something triggered her, when there's something that brought that to light, kind of like how I said, you know, just a word or a phrase, it doesn't matter what the situation was or the environment automatically puts me in that triggered stress response. So for her whatever was happening was the exact trigger to bring out spitting and biting behavior. And so her parents and I kind of did sort of a a dive on why this would happen. And most of the time when she was spitting and biting, it came from eating time. So at age nine, her parents decided to put her on a gluten-free and a dairy-free diet, which at the time was a great idea. There was a lot of research into gut health. And putting kids on a more restrictive diet would actually alleviate some of those triggers in your stomach or gastrointestinal issues. So at the time when they switched her diet, we actually saw an improvement of behavior. We saw an improvement of her conditions that led to the bathroom. She always would go to the bathroom A lot and we wouldn't understand necessarily the need to or why but it was because she couldn't identify the feeling within her stomach or the feeling within her bladder that could signal to her hey i actually have to go or i don't have to go so Putting her on a gluten-free and dairy-free diet actually alleviated a lot of those behaviors that we saw and the conditions medically. So the parents thought, and I even as a therapist thought, this was a great idea. But however, she would lunge across the table to bite her parents and spit on them. And it wasn't until they were at a restaurant one day, mom was explaining to me that... Even before mom could order food, she would lunge across the table. She would bite them, spit at them, and mom was just trying to order everyone's food. But in that moment, what actually came out of that is that this girl, although she has scripted language, although she has some sort of way of communicating and expressing some of her emotions, she couldn't tell the family that, hey... You're eating all of this food that I used to eat in front of me and then you're giving me a special plate or sometimes you bring food from home because you know the restaurant is not going to have a gluten-free or dairy-free option for me. You know, you could clearly see that she felt better because she was on this diet, but that didn't mean we validated the feeling of her not being allowed to do what she used to do or not being allowed to do what everyone else around her is doing. So why can mom and dad sit across from me and eat you know, a cheesy pepperoni pizza with all these toppings and you're putting a tapioca bread in front of me with some sort of butter and it's crumbly and and weird texture. And so what we didn't think about was, yes, that the gluten-free, dairy-free diet alleviated a lot of these conditions medically that she had, but it didn't validate her feelings like hey this is unfair why do i not get access to those things and you guys can and just because i'm sitting here and i use scripted language doesn't mean i don't understand doesn't mean i don't see or perceive things to be unfair and so the lunging and spitting behavior became because you're not going to listen to my feelings And this is the only way I can get attention from you in the moment when it's happening. So if we think about it, the function was, we thought, attention. She's trying to get attention from her parents. The attention shifted from mom talking to her to mom talking to the waiter and ordering food. So as a therapist, you know, you're like, okay, then we need to treat the function as attention or even escape. You don't want to be here at this restaurant or you don't want to eat here. But really, when it came down to it and we talked to her and saying, hey, do you feel sad when your parents or other people eat food you can't eat? And it wasn't an immediate kind of response she had, but the way that she would start looking at people, smiling at people, having her shoulders not be so tense and relaxed because we're not hearing her. The minute we started talking about, wow, this kind of feels unfair. This kind of doesn't feels icky. I don't like it when people eat different things in front of me because I don't have access to the same thing. And I can't tell you that that really sucks. So all I'm doing is talking about these sad moments in all these movies and the parents just thought, okay, she doesn't want to be here. She wants our attention. But at the time it was just, no, validate my feelings that I can't eat what you're eating. And once we started doing that, it's not that we took her off the gluten-free, dairy-free diet. We didn't do that because it actually medically would help. But at the time, validating what she felt, taking a step back and saying, wow, this actually does suck. So now parents took a different approach. Instead of going to a restaurant and sitting down and eating there, you know, they understood that these were difficult feelings for her and they would not do that anymore. They would get takeout. They would try to make things a little bit similar. They started eating a gluten-free, dairy-free diet themselves just to feel what it feels like and then actually validate that feeling within their child. And so it's like when the dad ate a piece of tapioca bread, he was like, Ugh, this is crumbly. This is weird tasting. And she would look over and smile and giggle. It's like, yeah, see, see what you made me eat? It's not great, is it? I want that pizza instead. <laughs> and so we have to think about the implications of sometimes it's not this extreme behavior. Sometimes it's not, it's a communication part that they couldn't communicate something. And once you validate those feelings, once you feel like you are heard, and you feel like you're heard in your safe space, and you feel like you're heard by the people who are supposed to hear you, Mm -hmm. then you start getting better. So we saw a decrease in spitting behavior, we saw a decrease in biting behavior, and it was more of a shared experience rather than throwing things that happens to her at her. And having her be a part of that process. So, I mean, I wasn't their therapist for much longer after that because I changed jobs. However, there was a sense of now a connection between the parents and their child, which they didn't have before. And instead of looking at things like this extreme behavior, and we don't know, maybe look at it a little bit. You know, Sometimes it's not as hard as you think. Sometimes the common sense part of it is, shoot, I would be in turmoil if i had to sit there and eat what i eat and i get to watch everyone else do that and whatever trauma or distress or overwhelm comes from that situation she's had 15 years of layers of just being angry mm-hmm. and taking a look and seeing that if you don't validate a person's feeling on the surface level you're creating and could potentially cause harm in the future
0: yeah oh my gosh yolandi that was such a great story and i love how you could see that pattern. But also, God, if you can think about that, her diet changed at nine years old and it took until she was 15. Oh my God. And if you think about food, I mean, just, you know, I brought up that communication scenario a little while ago, put yourself in this situation. Could you imagine having your food changed all of a sudden and you couldn't say anything about it? Oh
1: my God, I'd be mad. (laughs) <laughs> He's so angry. Yes. And then not being able to communicate. And then every time you had a behavior, it was always treated as something different and oh. not the root cause. So you don't oh. feel heard, you don't feel safe, you don't feel believed. And then it's layer upon layer of that distress because, and we know in an autism brain, the generalization piece is really difficult. So if you're generalizing the same thing in different situations, imagine how many band-aids you've created that you have to rip off in different situations in order to extinguish that generalization of that distress in every area. And so talking about a bigger unpacking in the end, then we could have just validated. Oh my gosh. Yes.
0: I have my own little story here to share too, just to really make this stick with our listeners. So one example that comes to mind for me is a young man I worked with who would create these, who would create various sounds And the sounds, and he he has multiple sounds. The sounds could be, some of the sounds could be very loud and very annoying to his family members. So, I mean, I I know that they're annoying to family members because I've heard from other family members. Super loud sounds. And he would actually name these sounds. So, but first he's 22 years old and he primarily communicates by speaking and writing. And when I first began working with him, We began to talk about just body feelings in general. I didn't really, you know, mention the word interception or it wasn't like some big grandiose thing into interception. It was more just talking about, you know, different body feelings that he might have. And for, for this particular young man, it really, it just opened a door. That's why I love interception so much is it just kind of opens a door. And by talking with him, just simply about his ears and what he was feeling in his ears he began to express kind of what these sounds were. And he also would kind of say, well, at certain situations, when he would make the sounds, then he would also go a little bit further and tell me the exact date that he created the sound that he made. So he would, he could tell me, I was working with this person. I was doing this. And he would tell me why he created the sound. So in this particular case, it was because he was working with ABA and he had a clip chart. As we know, I'm a speech therapist, so I wasn't that familiar with clip charts. All I knew was, okay, I know what a clip chart is, but I didn't know exactly what it looked like. But he described the whole clip chart to me and what he described. So he described the colors of the clip chart and and then he would get to, this, to the orange color. When the clip moved to orange and he didn't do what he was supposed to do, it was extremely Extremely upsetting to him. And he revealed this to me now. So this, this particular situation happened to him when he was like maybe four or five years old. So this is, this is years and years that he's been carrying this to the exact date. And he at the time had no way of communicating it. And really for all these years, he's really hasn't had a way of communicating it. He had learned to use this, these, sounds and he has like i said he had his particular names for certain sounds and he only uses the loud and annoying sounds when something is extremely upsetting to him and extremely traumatic for him so so for him getting his clip moved to orange was so upsetting because all this young man well at that time a boy wanted to do was To do good and to do what he people wanted him to do or was expected of him, but he couldn't do it. He couldn't do what was being asked of him. So he developed a way of making really loud sounds. So obviously that, you know, was some type of escape that he was able to just, you know, not have to do whatever the task was because he was making a loud sound and that became the bigger issue. But he clearly has told me that. Because I would, I asked him, like, how, so how did that make you feel making that sound? And he would say, makes me feel better. So it clearly, it was like a a coping strategy. It's an adaptation that he consciously made to make him feel better in certain situations. And that this kind of has led through, it's kind of continued with him throughout his life that when there's an upsetting situation, he will make this really loud sound that he has a particular name for. As we unpack more about kind of what's, you know, what situations are really upsetting to him, mm-hmm. that sound, at least from what he shares with me, is he's not making that sound anymore. And he and through this whole time, he would never share with me the sound or or like make the sound for me. I've asked him to make it for me so I knew what it was like and he he refused. So he just makes soothing sounds because he does have sounds that are very, you know, soothing to him at times. Um, so he will only make those and they're very soothing and wouldn't wouldn't be bothersome to anyone, but they're also very much make him comfortable. But in this situation, it clearly shows that this beautiful person has carried with him for so many years this way of communicating, which, you know, really isn't working for him because then you've got all these people around him getting upset at him which is again heartbreaking because we're missing we're only looking at that external behavior and then you're missing what that behavior is actually communicating we're not looking at the root cause which was i am not being heard i am not being understood i am upset and i need help and it started so
1: long ago so (sighs) Right. And, you know, I can, I can even see that being, you know, an ABA therapist myself, that you look at a behavior and you look at the antecedent, what happened right before that behavior started. And if it was a movement of a clip, and I've used many clip charts and many sticker charts, many PEX charts, whatever you wanted to call it. But you know, if the antecedent was I moved your clip and then the behavior happened, you're treating that function. You're treating that, that, oh, you didn't like this or you didn't like your clip move because of the activity or something that you should have been doing at that moment. From hearing you, it's goes deeper than that. It doesn't really necessarily matter the function. It doesn't matter the antecedent that happened. It is Mm -hmm. the coping mechanism that is used in order to alleviate the emotional feeling inside. Not because I want attention, not because I want to escape from something, not because I feel in distress. And if I feel in that distressed moment, whatever my behavior is going to be at that point is going to be the wrong function. Because I'm not doing it to escape whatever. and he might be able to understand that, oh, I shouldn't have done this. I should have done that instead. but the actual visual of moving the clip and not having his feelings validated is that adaptation. yeah. That he created. And,
0: I mean, to think about I think about this from my own, I I always you know, growing up, I felt like I was bad, quote unquote, bad because of little things I would do. and I didn't, it's not like necessarily I was called bad, but he actually, when you're visually seeing your, your clip go into the orange, which really literally, I don't know what the word was for the orange, whether it was, you know,
1: or not good enough or oops, weren't like
0: something, but it, so it communicated to him, I'm bad.
1: I'm not good enough. I mean, let's be real. Like how hurtful, And sometimes that color or that clip could be very specific. I mean, I've seen in classrooms too, where it's once you get moved to that orange, it's like, oh, parent email. And then once you get moved to red, it's, oh, okay, go see the principal and have a conference with your family. So, I mean, the implications of it being so small and the response being that huge that now we have to have an official meeting, that in itself is very traumatic. If I sat in the classroom and, and that happened to me, I would be very fearful to make any mistake, because I know that in the end, whatever is going to happen in that meeting, and it's behind closed doors, because I'm not there to defend myself or talk about it, that they're going to come up with something that isn't going to help necessarily. And I'm not saying that sometimes that that's the case. I mean, some, of course, sometimes there is true things that do happen and conversations need to happen. But we have to really make sure that we're talking about the thing that's actually underlying rather than just the surface behavior, the antecedent, we have to kind of look at those things. Yeah.
0: And, you know, that's I think that's such a bigger conversation of yes, these clip charts are used today in many classrooms. I know, you know, my son when he was in kindergarten definitely had a clip chart. So he was always on his best behavior, but what about the kids who weren't? How do you how did that make them feel? So this is much bigger conversation. And I think even if we think about like our conversation with Chloe that we had on a previous episode, you know, she had mentioned that she had, they had kind of a clip chart that was used for the, for the good. So could we make a clip chart that's used for the positive or used for the good rather than using it as a way to make you feel like crap about yourself if you go into the bottom colors? Um, cause it's clipped down, clip down. Those are the words that I would hear mm-hmm in classrooms, just going into my son's classroom. So this isn't just, you know, about ABA. This is kind of a very
1: normal, can be a very normal It's a classroom management strategy. And it's an effective classroom management strategy if you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, having to control 32 kids in a classroom. And I'm not saying that it's a bad idea. However, you have to make sure when you're when when a child truly has a response to that chart when there is something that is potentially distressing. Some kids thrive on a clip chart. They love because they understand the rules. They they can clearly see they're never really in the orange or the, the red, so they don't necessarily have that. I mean, some kids just love even having a, a, a sticker chart or something like that. But if you're using it for more punitive reasons or for this is the thing that's going to cause your behavior change, then we're not actually looking at the true spirit of the program. I think it should be more designed on having more positive aspects like, hey, you remembered your name on the paper, move your clip up. Hey, you responded to questions, you raised your hand and you haven't done that all day, move your clip up. Rather than, hey, you talked out and you called out, move your clip down. So it's a mindset change that we have to go through. Instead of saying you failed, no, failure isn't failing. Failure is actually just the first attempt in learning that you are a child you are learning from the perceived world around you so if you fail no that's just your first time and now you're learning and in the end there isn't actually anything that everyone knows for exact sure like you know we always talk about now that you're an adult and you're adulting you're trying to figure out and make sense of the world but nothing is necessarily that concrete and so if we just address the failure part of it and we visually show the failure part of it That's a negative mindset that we're creating. So we need to flip that switch. We need to go, what is the positive mindset we can create? You didn't fail. That was just your first attempt in learning. And even if it takes you five, six, seven, eight times, you are still learning. And it shouldn't be a punitive discussion. It should be a growth discussion. Yes. I love it. Yeah.
0: This is where we're going with it. I mean, there's so many, you know, if we really go on, it could go. <laughs> Yolandi and I could talk on forever about these kind of things because it it is, you know, it's a change that really, truly needs to be had. But um,
1: I mean, I know even as a behaviorist, sometimes listening to things, you hear little trigger words like, oh, I don't agree or oh, I don't think about that. Of course hundred percent. And Debbie and I are are right there with you. It's not that we're saying these things are concrete. It's not that we're saying this is a better way. It's a conversation saying, let's look at this and actually really think about it and actually really have an honest discussion about what's going on. Are we, we doing actually effective? And if it is, that's amazing. That's great. But it's a deeper conversation into thinking in a different way that we haven't done, that it's not necessarily follows our textbooks. Let's stop and and be human for a minute.
0: Yeah, and keep the emotional health, the mental health, because, you know, let's think about the mental health of our children, of these people, of everyone, because, you know, here I am so late in life, unpacking things from my childhood. Why do we have to make everything so negative and out in reality- these children they are just learning so we need to do things in a way that is loving and kind and we're not going to have to unpack all this trauma as they get older so and this is where this kind of exploring interception these feelings can come up and it's it's real and these individuals may not be aware of it so it's something we really have to keep in mind and they just come up in the body. And for, I mean, as I'm speaking with clients, I can see, I can see it many times in their face and they aren't even aware of it to the point where I have to point it out. So we as adults may be the one who are going to see and read that body language before the individual can actually even feel it. We can notice a change in the body. We can notice Yolandi and I are very, That's one of the things that we do very differently is that we look for those changes in the body. So,
1: and it's subtle. I mean, it could yes. be you raising your shoulders a tiny yes. bit, you squinting, you know, your mouth or tightening mm-hmm. your jaw. Or, and even if you're doing it sometimes unconsciously, those little signals is usually a window into what's actually going on. Yeah. That'd be, and I have sat across a client and I say something and it's positive, and, and then you see that little signal. And when you validate that signal, say, hey, you just raised your shoulders, like you just got tense, something is not right here. And we start unpacking that we get so much more results from validating that feeling and saying, hey, what you're feeling is okay, your words and your feelings are important. And When you do that, it signals to me that something is off and let's explore it so I don't do it to you again.
0: And it doesn't always mean that they're going to get their way. And I think that's where people go with what we're talking about is like people think that, oh, you're just giving them their way. No, we're not talking about, no, they're not necessarily going to get to do the thing that they wanted to do because maybe it's not safe. Maybe it's not, maybe there's several reasons of what that reason might be. So just because we're, we are validating What's happening inside them and their emotions does not mean we are letting them get away with murder. We're not, that is not what we are. That is not what this is about. It's about validating what the person is feeling and helping them with this interconnected because we need people to help us through. So it's an interconnected relationship and helping them through these really hard feelings when you don't get your way, but what i would like to just say is start looking at changes in your child young adults wh- whoever look for little changes in body language and changes in face when you see if you start to just be the observer notice and read what's happening in your loved one or in your in your own self if you're an adult start noticing when your body tenses up or when your body has a change, because that can be just a doorway to exploring so many things that need to be explored in order for you to kind of move through things. So this is an important conversation and something that we're going to continue talking about. And we're actually going to have an interview coming up that we are very excited about. I think we're just going to end there, but we wanted to end with another quote because we absolutely love Mr. Rogers. What a man, like what an amazing person, so ahead of his time. Mm -hmm. And um, we just thought this would be a good one to end with. And this is called, it's from a song actually. So it's a beautiful song. Of Mr. Rogers, and it's called The Truth Will Make Me Free. What if I were very, very sad and all I did was smile? I wonder after a while, what might become of my sadness? What if I were very, very angry and all I did was sit and never think about it? What might become of my anger? Where would they go? And what would they do if I couldn't let them out? Maybe I'd fall, maybe get sick or doubt. But what if I could know the truth and say just how I feel? I think I'd learn a lot that's real about freedom.
1: We love hearing from you. So if you have any questions, comments, or just want to connect with us, you can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram. Feel free to drop us a message, leave us a comment, ask us a question, or just share your thoughts with us. Your thoughts do matter, and we can't wait to hear from you.